Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we are going to see today God's will for us. God's will for us. You know, God has given mankind great ingenuity, and it seems that we are always trying to live longer and better and more fulfilled. But our problem is we want our will done. We want what we want. I was reading an article at the beginning of the year from the Wall Street Journal that highlighted five inventions uh, that are meant to help us live better and longer. Among them, a vision-boosting headset. California startup created a $4,000 virtual reality headset to restore vision to those with macular degeneration. Uh, there's a spoon that recreates saltiness. A professor at the University of Maine developed a spoon that artificially juices up the perception of saltiness. There is a hearing aid for health, a device uh, with artificial intelligence software they say will turn down the background noise and amp up the speech in noisy areas. Uh, there is a brain implant to help you smell again. Electronic nose is what it's called. You put it on, on your glasses, sends a wireless signal to a surgical implant uh, and transmit info to your brain. There is a, wear, a wearable pin that fights solitude in older people. It detects the number of words that are being spoken, and if the count drops below a certain count, the conversation as therapy pin sends a text to a friend or an email to a healthcare worker. And of course, you may have heard of the Neuralink chips that are going to be implanted in your brain to even make the paralyzed walk. And while God has given such great ingenuity, none of these things can change your heart, or solve all your problems, truly make you happy, or reveal the will of God to you. Only God can. These three verses we're in today, uh, they're, they're the ultimate kitchen plaque verses. These are fridge magnet verses. These are, these are ones that, that most Christians recognize or can rattle off pretty quickly. They're wonderful, they're beautiful, they're encouraging. They're, some of you are like, wow, six imperatives last week, it's nice to get these three, right? But what these are, these aren't just the ultimate kitchen plaque verses. These are pull over to the side of the road and think about it verses. In 1 Thessalonians, uh, we've been seeing such, such beautiful truth. And in chapter 1, it starts with, you know, Jesus wants his church to know they're chosen and loved by him. And to turn to him from idols, to serve him, and, and wait while actively involved, engaged in, in gospel ministry, wait for his return. And chapter 2 just talks about being engaged in relationships and just being... Uh, so willing to share your life and share the word of God because people become beloved to each other. It's wonderful as the word of God does the work. And chapter three, just the rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing in people's lives being changed and people's faith in Christ and that prayer for growing, uh, uh, overflowing in love uh, for one another and for all people. And then we got into chapters four and five and it was about the urgency of the return of Christ and that you would have, you would have uh, assurance of the security of believers that die before Jesus 
returns. And then we got into the, the last part of chapter 5, and this is we're still working on it. This idea of just loving urgently in light of the imminency of Christ's return. And, and we saw this last week, this idea of just Christians, deal with things appropriately with other believers in your church. Because love obeys God. And we saw six imperatives in verses 14 and 15. We saw what love must do. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be, be patient with everyone. We saw what love must never do. Never let evil be repaid with evil. Hold back one another from payback. And then we saw that beautiful exhortation, always seek to do good to all. What an aim, to always seek good to do good to all. And it, it really highlights the startling beauty that defeats disunity. Uh, it's gospel love, it's, it's church life as it's meant to be. And I love how Paul has spoken so tenderly to his beloved family. And now what he does is he dresses them individually. He's like, you need to think about your hearts so that you can do the things that God has said to do. It's, it's this inward focus on the heart, that, that their hearts would be right with God to do his will. And, and again, some of you are like, oh, after the heavy imperatives, this will be nice, right? It'll be nice. So what we have here, the most famous verses of 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 to 18, chapter 5, it illustrates the will of God in three specific areas that hit your daily life. That Jesus wants his church to rejoice unceasingly, pray persistently, and give thanks universally for everything. So it begins with rejoicing. Everyone likes to rejoice. Uh, we all like to be happy. We're not always happy, but rejoicing is different. Rejoicing is remembering the joy you have in Christ and no matter the circumstance, still having, not where you're bouncing off the walls or where you're, you know, bouncing around uh, happy uh, as all get out all day long and everyone, you know, gets annoyed by you. It's, it's more the idea of this foundational under, undergirding uh, joy that you have in Christ no matter what happens. Rejoice always, literally rejoice unceasingly, which is a very, it's a familiar New Testament theme. Christian joy, very unique. It is otherworldly, it is supernatural because it emerges, here's what emerges, in adverse circumstances. It's counterintuitive. It's otherworldly and supernatural. The Thessalonians suffered with joy, chapter 1, verse 6, and Paul also suffered with joy, chapter 3, verse 9. And Paul is concerned. What he is concerned about is that the joy in Christ might be strangled by their suffering. And he tells them, rejoice in Christ. Now, you might feel like this today. You might go, I'm going through so much, and I'm, I'm burdened, and my heart is heavy laden, and it is hard to feel joyful. Or to be joyful, to rejoice. This is how many of us feel. The Thessalonians had every reason to be downcast. Humanly speaking, they had persecution from the world. There was some friction going on in the church. But here is this joy in Christ that is the mark of Christianity, 
which amazed the heathen world and attracted them to Christ. But they had every reason, humanly speaking, to be downcast. Some of you do too. But the challenge here with this joyfulness, this rejoicing, is the constancy of it. He says always, at all times, in every occasion, which is a paradox, it really is. The paradox is seen very clearly in 2 Corinthians 6.10, where Paul says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And people would look at that and go, how can you do that? Only because of Jesus. Paul told the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Jesus said in Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted, because so they persecuted the prophets before you. He said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 20. Romans 12 says to us, rejoice in hope of the resurrection. So it's this idea of joy unstoppable, even though many of us are like uh, the drains clogged. Joy unstoppable. I, I kind of liken it to a permeating smell or an aroma, a sweetness that gets infused and lasts. Composer Joseph Haydn was once asked why his music was so joyful. And his answer was, well, when I think upon God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap from my pen. God gave me a cheerful heart, so I serve him with a cheerful heart. Christian joy. You know, it doesn't ebb and flow like the stock market. It doesn't ebb and flow like public opinion. It's supernatural. It's rooted in a relationship with Jesus. And it, it emerges in the most adverse of circumstances. And again, it doesn't mean it makes you jump all over the place with, with happiness. You can have an underwriting joy in Christ and still be grieving a loss. 17th century pastor Jeremy Taylor, he was persecuted, his, his house was plundered, the family was driven out of town, and everything he had was confiscated. And here's what he said. They have taken everything from me, but they have not taken away my cheerful spirit, my good conscience, and they have still left me with the providence of God and all his promises. And he said, he that hath so many causes of joy, so great, should never choose to sit down upon his little handful of thorns. He thought of his problems in life, which to us sound horrendous, don't they? He thought of them as a handful of thorns in light of the joy he had in Christ. I would love to have that perspective in my life. You know, if you don't rejoice in God when things are going well, there's a pretty good chance that you won't give him thanks and rejoice when things fall apart. I think sometimes what would be a really good discipline for us is to find ways to remember joy. Let's say you're a kid or, or, and, and, you, and you, there were a bunch of kids first hour, there'll be some third hour, a lot of them aren't here because they're in their classes, but let's say the, your parents ask you to clean your room and you want to play. You can rejoice that you have a room. You can rejoice that you have parents to direct you. You can re remember that Jesus wants you to obey your parents. 
which, you know, every parent will text me and say, thank you for saying that today. <laughs> How about when you have so many tasks in your life or in your job or in your household and, and you, you feel the burden and it's breaking, it feels like it's breaking your back. You can rejoice that God has gifted you to do a lot of things well. You can even rejoice that God has, has gifted you such that people trust you with great responsibility. How about when the bottom drops out of some opportunity or some thing you thought was going to be really good in your life? You can rejoice that God knows better. You can rejoice that God sees the beginning from the end. You can even rejoice that he may be leading you to something else that will, will sanctify you to an even greater degree. See, rejoicing is, is being satisfied in the one who sanctifies. Jesus wants his church to rejoice in an unceasing manner. And then we, we get that, that little short verse, pray without ceasing. These are very short verses. What, what does that mean, pray without ceasing? It, it doesn't mean that you're going to say, hey, sorry, but I can't hang out with you because I'm praying without ceasing. I can't eat breakfast or lunch or dinner because I'm, I'm praying without ceasing. Can't do my job because praying without ceasing. That's not what it means. It's Pray here is a comprehensive term for prayer. It includes all the words for prayer. And it, you're speaking to God. You're, you're talking to God. And it, it's the persistence of prayer. It, it says without ceasing. It doesn't mean nonstop praying. It implies a recurring habit of prayer in your life. Something you repeat often. You know when you say to someone in your household, you always, it's, always, it's the accusation, you always do this or that, right? I've done it so many times to people and it's like, it's not true. What you're saying is the pattern of your life, your habit is such that this keeps recurring. Not always, recurring. This is pray without ceasing. Pray in a recurring manner that is often but you can do all your things, too. So you can pray anywhere while you're doing anything. In New Testament times, when this idea of without ceasing, it meant uh, that it was applied to the un uninterrupted necessary payment of really hard taxes that you didn't really want to have to always pay. And it, it was used for continual service of an official in uh, public service. Uh, Jewish historian Josephus use that same word, that phrase for repeated military attacks. He also used it for uh, continual failing in military attacks. But the best, the best usage, I think, was the idea of the consistent fruit production of, of a fruit tree. It just keeps happening, keeps coming. Now, I would liken it to this, and I'm going to use kind of a negative example, but I think you understand, a persistent cough. Now, no one in the room right now is persistently coughing. If so, we'd say, uh, it, we have some outdoor seating for you, <laughs> right? I'm sensitive to the persistent cougher. And by the way, I empathize. No one likes to be coughing and like, you feel like, <laughs> I just keep coughing. And, and it's like you take a breath and then, then the cough comes again. A persistent cough, an ongoing cough. Now, take it in the, in the best positive way. A persistent prayer life. We just keep praying, and you keep praying, and you have this joy 
from Christ, even in the midst of some of the most adverse circumstances in life, and then a persistent prayer life that kind of keeps cultivating joy even in the midst of your trials. This uninterrupted communication with God that can keep your life anchored. There's a book by Thomas Kelly called A Testament of Devotion. And I'm just going to paraphrase what he said, but I love this part of his book. Here's what he says. He says, walk and talk and do your business and do your job and hang out with your friends and all the while be carrying on this secret conversation with God in the background, fellowship with God as you're doing all the other things you're doing. I'm praying when I'm preaching. I'm praying that God would make my words clear. I'm praying that you would receive the word and want to do it. I'm praying that the word would have its work among us. I'm praying that God would be glorified. You can be doing your work all day long. You could be having a conversation and still be praying in the background. This almost unceasing type of prayer that is persistent because you know you're so dependent on God. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And it doesn't mean that he's not going to ever eat. It means that it's going to be an ongoing, persistent thing in his life. That's sweet. Jesus told his disciples, always pray. Do not lose heart. Romans 12 tells us, be constant in prayer. Persistent. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying at all times. Colossians 4 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This prayer, this persistent cough of a prayer in the best possible way. Martin Luther used to say that when he had huge volumes of work to do, he said, I have so much work to do, I cannot get on with, without three hours a day of praying. It shocks us, right? Prayer is lifting your heart to God in humble submission and dependence upon him. Trusting him as your loving heavenly father. Acknowledging him as almighty Lord even in the midst of conflict. William Law wrote this in 1728. He said this, At the first approach of resentment and envy or contempt towards someone else, in all your disagreements and all your misunderstandings, instead of indulging your mind with low reflections, you must pray. I love that. At the first approach of any kind of resentment or envy, all the things we deal with in life, contempt for others, disagreements, misunderstandings, instead of indulging our minds with thoughts about all of that, pray. I've never known anyone who thinks they pray enough. The best, most persistent prayers I know always feel like they don't pray enough. It's because we have a heart, as, as, if you're a believer, you have a heart to commune, to commune with God. But no one I know thinks they pray enough, and, and the answer to that is God knows, God knows. And he doesn't excuse, excuse neglect, but he forgives, he fosters a delight as you pour out your heart to him, as you find joy in him. And Jesus wants his church to rejoice unceasingly and pray persistently. And then verse 18. In everything give thanks. Give thanks universally for everything in all circumstances. 
Think about it. If you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation, there, there's no combo of events that can kind of combine to, to take you out. Because God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's working in his providence to, to work a bigger plan. I mean, you think of all the aggravating things in your life right now. Think of all the things that upset you. Think of all the things that stir you up and maybe even dredge up old memories and old injuries. All the aggravating things of life are a temporary part of God's larger plan for your sanctification. And what these verses are telling us is you can always drum up a reason for thanks. You probably know this, but Romans 1.21 says that a failure to give thanks is a sign of unbelief. And if a failure to give thanks is a sign of unbelief, it's kind of makes me want to just make sure I give thanks to, to prove I'm still in the family. It's kind of like in the COVID season, I love to smell things and make sure I still have smell and taste and eat, taste things and what have you. I'm, I'm good, you know. I, I like to do the hand, hand, I call it hand juice, but the hand sanitizer, right? And I like to smell it. I'm like, ah, oh, all right, I'm all right. How was that guy before this whole season? So just, you got to get used to it, right? Give thanks all the time, in everything, in, in each moment, in, in, in the totality of your life, in, in every kind of circumstance, even persecution, even trials, because they're from God's sovereign hand. It's painful for us, but he is working out a larger plan. We're to give thanks rather than complaining, rather than cursing, rather than blaming we're going to respond in, in gratitude. Now think about what your knee-jerk reaction is to things. Your knee-jerk response. That exposes what or who you worship. Like our idolatry is exposed by our knee-jerk response. And often I am horrified by mine. The psalmist said in Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In Ephesians 5, it says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to who Jesus is and what he does. Paul told the Philippians, don't be anxious, but in everything by, by prayer, with thanksgiving, make requests, your requests known to God. See, it's impossible for you to be anxious and thankful at the same time. He says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 15, through Christ, let us continually offer up, give a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Unrelenting thanks, kind of like waves crashing on the beach over and over again. In your blessings, remember the Chinese proverb, when you drink from the stream, remember the spring. Our blessings come from God. Thank God. Scottish pastor George Matheson was nearly blind when he was 18 years old. And here's what he prayed. God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. 
I've thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I have been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. Giving thanks to God in everything, no matter what. It's a fruit of grace. It, in contrast to constant grumbling or being ungrateful. And if you're a Christian, basically there's no circumstance where you cannot give thanks. Even in trouble, we're more than conquerors. The spirit of glory and of, of God rests on us. Now, something happened in my life this week, and afterwards I realized, oof, I am preaching on rejoicing and praying and thanking God, and I did not think of it once in this circumstance. And that happened a lot of times this week, but this one was notable for me. I was driving home Wednesday night after midweek. I had been talking to people for quite a while, and it was about 9.30 at night, and I get a phone call from one of my daughters. I'm almost home, and she tells me that one of my other daughter's cars had broken down, and it, that I was right near her, like a minute away. They were looking on the fine friends. They're like, Dad, you're like right there. And so I went to go help. I'm a good dad, so I went to go help her. But inwardly, I was like, oh, it's, not, it's 9.30 already. I wanted, I wanted to go to bed at 9.30. I've, been, I've learned to treasure my sleep in the last few years. And we called to get a tow. It was cold on Wednesday night. We called to get a tow. Turns out it, it lasted. It took a long, long time. It was a very long wait. We were both frustrated. And we actually got told at one point, well, people are waiting two or three hours. Get used to it. This is the way it is nowadays. So I get home. It's late. And I'm inwardly grumbly. I'm in a bad attitude. And I checked it in front of my daughter. I was like, I, I wasn't, you know, but... I knew it. I'm like, I'm not going to get enough sleep tonight. i got to get up early in the morning. And, and then it dawned on me. I have so much to rejoice in and thank God for right here. My daughter didn't break down in the middle of the freeway. She didn't break down far from home when she was going back to college. She broke down a mile from our house. Uh, I was there at the same time to help her. I got to catch up with my youngest daughter and Spend some nice time with her. Uh, we were able to get the car towed. All these things I can thank God for. So much to thank God for. Now, I could have been kinder to the driver of the tow truck. <laughs> my daughter, I was convicted over my lack of care for this person, but my daughter reminded me, everyone in my family is my supervisor, so they're always telling me it's all good. I could have prayed for him. I didn't. I could have shared the gospel with him. I didn't. I could have blessed him in some way. I really didn't. I, I just basically didn't say anything to him. I just kind of looked at him and uh, said, let's get this done, you know. And there were some extenuating circumstances. We kind of knew why it was so late. We found out, and it was, there were some inconsistencies in the story, but whatever. I was having a bad attitude, and it started in my heart. See, I was worshiping my desire to get sleep. I was hung up about it. I wanted to do what I wanted. God had other plans. So I thought to myself as I went to bed that night, well, I'm going to wait for the next opportunity. Well, you know, these opportunities come in waves. And so Thursday morning comes, and I'm thinking, 
God's going to give me an opportunity to rejoice and be thankful and really practice what I preach. So sure enough, I'm waiting for an appointment that was quite late. And I thought, well, thank you, Lord. I can spend time praying. Thank you, Lord. I can spend time working on my sermon. Thank you, Lord. I can think through some, some things. And, and then I thought, well, let's look around and see maybe there's someone I can bless. And there's a man that had walked up and kind of spur of the moment we started talking. And I, I think I was a blessing to him. I think it's probably good for us to think about thanking. To think about thanking. Maybe even if you keep a journal or something, you write maybe every day something for which you can thank God. I, I keep a journal, but last night, I, I, I was seriously like getting in bed and I'm thinking, oh, I want to write this down because, hey, I'm going to say it tomorrow, so I might want to write one down because you know, people do it at Thanksgiving time, but how about writing something down every day that you can thank God for? And I thought of something, and, and I thought, oh, I left my journal downstairs. I can't get up now. So I just thought about it. But Jesus wants his church to rejoice unceasingly and pray persistently and give thanks universally. It's what he wants for his church. And you know why? Put your eyes on the last part of verse 18. Look there in your Bible. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's why. It's the will of God for you. It's his wish. It's his desire. It's his purpose that rejoicing and praying and giving thanks are vital parts of the will of God for you. And it's in Christ Jesus. Only in him are our motives transformed. In the Mosaic Law, even, it was focusing on outward conformity. You couldn't transform your heart, and yet it was the perfect expression of God's will at that moment. But in Christ, our union with Christ reflects an inner transformation. It, it drives a devotion to God. That's why so often... When you see the phrase, the will of God in scripture, it just, it makes you kind of, your ears should perk up. Like my dog, Leela, when she sits in the backyard, right near the back door and like keeps watch. And what you see, her ears just kind of move back and forth wherever the noises are. Our ears should perk up when we see in scripture, the will of God. Here's a few. We've seen it in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There is no question about that. 1 Peter 2.5, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 John 2, the world is passing away with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Romans 12 says we need to discern what is the will of God. But I want you to notice that whenever it talks about the will of God, it's, it's general, it's not specific. And what many of us do, maybe a little bit superstitiously, I don't know, God knows our hearts. I know I've done this many times. We kind of play hide and seek with the will of God. We kind of play lost and found with the will of God, and God's will is never lost. He knows what his will is. God's will is not code for if, I'm, if I behave well enough I'll get what I want. And God's will is not hidden like buried treasure. God's will is not like looking for a needle in a haystack or superstitiously hunting, superstitiously hunting for signs to tell you what to do. God's will is found in obeying his perfect word. Now, I know some of you are going to say, I, I know I should do this. I know this is the will of God, and I know it says it's God's will for me. You know, kind of blah, 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 though. What I want to know is, 
Should I move to Timbuktu? Should I buy this new car? Should I take that job? Should I ask her to marry me? And I would say, if that's the questions you're asking, praise God, that means you want to please God. You're seeking him, and that's good. But in all those things I just mentioned, there's no biblical should. There's no secret message, no answer coming down from heaven your way. Here's what you need to do. Ask wise advice. Make a wise decision. Take the risk. Do it. And own it. You made a decision. See, the issue is we search for the will of God when it's right before our eyes in the most general of ways, but we don't want that. We want the laundry list of our desires. I want to tell you, you're free in Christ. If you're, if you're a believer, you're free in Christ. Love Jesus and do whatever you want if it's not illegal or immoral. Do we want? God says in Psalm 32 that it's good for us to seek his leading. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But I don't think we should pin all of our decisions on God or declare that he wants us to do something that he hasn't guaranteed. Like, like we shouldn't blame our choices on God. Our conscience isn't bound by our ideas. Isaiah 30 says, this is, you'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whether you turn to the right or to the left. And it, it shows a sensitivity to the Lord, but not a guarantee that every decision you make will end up being like the perfect thing. And if you take a wrong turn, if you make a mistake, God can use that too for good. But I know one thing, he's not going to be blamed for my foolishness. He can use it for his glory. What he wants me to do is live wisely and humbly and godly. So go buy a house. Go get a car. Go eat lunch. Go bless someone. Go take a trip. Do it aware of God's presence. Do it aware of God's power at work in every believer. What God wants you to do is rejoice and pray and give thanks in the midst. Serve him. Obey his word. Preach the gospel. Love and forgive. Be holy in Jesus' name according to who he is and what he does. Live to honor him as you make wise choices based on the truth. You know, near the end of this letter, I think Paul's words, I think it does, should make our ears perk up and go, hmm, I mean, I'm supposed to rejoice and pray and give thanks in everything, and everything isn't great. My assessment of everything in life isn't like, ooh, that's the best. But what are these, you know, refrigerator magnet verses these kitchen plaque verses, these most well-known verses in, in 1 Thessalonians really telling us. I think they're screaming at the top of their lungs at us. Like, pull over and give proper attention. Think about it. If you do this, you're declaring once again you're dependent on God. You are dependent on God. Like where we think, I, I need to rejoice, I need to pray, I need to give thanks, because for me, as someone who has trusted in Christ, it's like breathing. I must talk to God. He tells me to do that. He, he knows how much I need him. He knows how good this is for my soul. This is going to lock me into communion with him as I rejoice and pray and give thanks. It's the lifeblood of my Christian life. God knows how much I need him. So he instructs me and he enables me to make these three choices. 
that come from the depth of my heart. They spring from our hearts. You know, if, if there's a wellspring of, of our hearts and if it's contaminated, then what comes out is harmful. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. This battle is won or lost in our hearts. So near the end of this letter, Paul just zeroes in on our hearts. He wants what's best. He wants us to choose to be joyful and thankful and prayerful. And some of you are like, this seems impossible. I've gone through, all week long I've been thinking about this, and so many times I thought, this seems impossible. Because it is, apart from Christ. It's supernatural, it's otherworldly, and it is possible because all things are possible. All the good things that God intends are possible with him. We have ample reason to do this. Every believer should have the assurance, God is with me and he cares about me. There's ample reason then to do what these verses say. Be assured, God is with the tenderhearted. God is with the, the weak and heavy laden, the weary, the downcast, the needy begging for mercy, the joyful, the prayerful, the thankful, everyone who declares their dependence on him. Have you noticed? The cry of a baby soon stops as family takes him out of his crib and into their arms. We have a seven-month-old living with us right now, and he is calmed by present, tender care. So, so is the believer. When you, when you talk to God, when, when, you, when you pour your heart out to him, you express your need, you cry for mercy, you plead for relief, you, you commune with him. You're communicating with, with him and and giving grateful thanks, and never do you have more assurance that God is with you than in those moments. Like if you're, if you're crying out for forgiveness right now from God, he wants to forgive you more than you want the forgiveness. Because he is enough. He is enough for us. If you have been invited to freely come to God through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your place, and you have humbly come to believe and be saved, that means you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in Christ. And when your soul is in union with Christ, you find him to be everything you need. And he will provide. He will provide everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. Jesus wants his church doing these things. He wants us to rejoice unceasingly and pray persistently and give thanks universally. And these verses, how memorable and how sweet they are to our souls, it's for our good. But the most important aspect of these verses I've saved till right now. I know some of us are like, got the six imperatives in verses 14 and 15. Now I just want some sweet comfort. Let me just say there's sweet comfort in the imperatives. And these three rejoice, pray, Give thanks are also imperatives. Do you know what that means? It means they're commands, they're not suggestions. So many of us go through life and think, I've got the smorgasbord of God in front of me, and I'll take a little bit of rejoicing, but I'm going to hold off on the prayer right now, and thanks, I've, I've, I've had a little too much. The will of God is, is, is such that every imperative command of God is his will for us. Verses 14 and 15, that's God's will for us too. It's his desire, it's his purpose for us. Every scriptural imperative to Christians 
is the will of God. It's what he wants, and he clearly commands it in his word. But everything else, love Jesus and do as you please. And if God Almighty wants us to do something, it behooves us to obey him eagerly, knowing he's going to be pleased and be praised. I like the way Augustine put it, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Everything God commands, he gives you strength to obey. He, he wants you to obey. Like he's rooting for you. But not just that, he is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. You know what Spurgeon said? He said, when you pray, you have a mightier one than you praying with you. Jesus, who ever lived to make intercession for us. So you want to be a healthy Christian? Fix your mind on these things, these imperative commands. It's good for you. It's able to improve your life. All of us are concerned right now about our immunity, our immune system. Many have compromised immune systems. We don't want our immune systems to be compromised, and we want to strengthen it. And this immune system that God has given us, this complex network of cells and organs and tissues and helping our body fight infection and protecting us against disease and helping heal from injury. It's the key defender of our health. You want to be a healthy Christian? You need to do certain things. You know, it's interesting. You read an article about boosting your immunity. It always, it always says this, eat well, move around a lot, sleep enough, and avoid germs, like wash your hands. It's the simple stuff. Your spiritual health is contingent on you choosing certain things in God's strength and for his glory. There's nothing we design can change our hearts, can solve all of our problems, can reveal to us the will of God, or truly make us happy. Only God can. So instead of a wandering, barren mind, bolt it down to truth. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is God's will for you. And you know what it tells us above all? That worship is the will of God. These are worship. Worshiping God when you rejoice and pray and give thanks. Worship is God's will for you. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. All glory be to you that you have designed us in such a way to respond to you in these ways. And may you be pleased. May you be pleased with our rejoicing and our prayer and our thanks to you. We are so, so dependent upon you. And we praise you, Lord. We, we thank you for the opportunities you'll give us today and even this week and as you give us life and strength and breath to do what pleases you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.